Hello, everyone. This is Sal. Welcome to the Bitcoin Taxes Podcast. Each week, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Our guests all have a unique perspective or expertise related to these areas. The goal of our podcast is to provide information to our listeners about new and existing applications of these rapidly emerging spaces. Our guest today is Drew Hinkes. Drew has an expansive background in the crypto space. He is an attorney with Carlton Fields, working as part of its national blockchain and digital currency practice, and is also the co-founder and general counsel of Athena Blockchain a startup investment firm focused on compliant offering of tokenized investment products. Drew was also appointed as an adjunct professor by the NYU Stern Business School and the NYU School of Law, where he co-teaches blockchains, digital currencies, and the future of the financial services industry. Drew, thanks for being here today. Hey, Sal. Thanks for having me. No problem. That's a very impressive background. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, I caught the fever, so to speak, and got was fascinated by crypto in 2014 and uh, over the past couple of years, I've tried to figure out how to incorporate it into my legal practice. And as I learned more and became more enthusiastic about the space, uh, like a lot of other folks, an, an amazing array of opportunities presented themselves to me. So uh, excited to be here joining you and to talk to the folks listening uh, about some of the tax issues that I think are important um, and where we can maybe do better. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a very uh, informative podcast episode. So can you expand a little bit on your background? Sure. So I was, uh, prior to going to law school, I was employed in a computer consulting capacity. I worked on SAP databases, some hardware architecture, and some help desk uh, related roles. And I, I think I was involved in tech during the year or two years over the last 20 years when it wasn't the cool thing to do. <laughs> um, and so then I decided to go to law school and figured I would never have to think about technology again. And lo and behold, in 2014, I found the crypto world and have been captivated by it ever since. Awesome. All right. So let's jump right into the, the questions here. So there's not much official guidance from the IRS on cryptocurrency taxation. Um, generally, just the official guidance in 2014. That's what most people work off of. Um, there's a lot of gaps in that guidance. So can you tell me what you think the gaps are and what your opinion is about those gaps? Sure. And I'll start with two general comments. First, it's been widely reported that new guidance is imminent, perhaps as reported by some to be released in the next 30 days. So for those listening at home, uh, it could be by the time you get to this, there's some new material out there and this is outdated. If not, buckle up. And if so, I too am eager to see what that looks like. Um, the guidance that we got in 2014, by 2014 standards was excellent. Um, it demonstrated that the IRS fundamentally understood what these assets were how they were used, and it uh, demonstrated some thoughtful decision-making on the IRS's part. That being said, we're in 2019, and the crypto world looks very different. We have a variety of different products that didn't exist at the time, including ERC-721 NFTs, um, securities offered in tokenized form. We have a variety of different business activities being conducted with crypto assets that were not popular at the time. So the 2014 guidance, I thought, for the most part, was excellent but it's showing its age based on certain things that don't make sense anymore or certain things that were left out. Um, the first two that I'll mention are airdrops and forks. Um, these were not really part of the crypto lexicon in 2014 and were not things that were a regular part of business activities related to crypto. And so there, there isn't any mention of these in the guidance. And um, some of the really important tax issues, let's start with airdrops. Um, for those listening at home who may not know what airdrops are generally, an airdrop is when an issuer decides to 
gift or provide without usually any affirmative action required on the part of the recipient a crypto asset. Um, typically airdrops are dropped into hosted wallets provided by third parties and in certain cases the recipient of the airdrop may not have any notice that the airdrop is occurring. They may not know when they received the asset. So there are, there are really two important issues with respect to airdrops. The first of which is how should the asset be valued and when should the asset be valued? Now we know that crypto assets under the 2014 guidance are treated as property, even mm -hmm. though for a bunch of reasons it may not make sense to do that anymore, or that may be an over-inclusive designation at this point. And so when you receive property, the value that you pay for it is what's referred to as your basis. And so the first question that remains unaddressed is what should be the basis for an airdropped asset? Um, given that there is generally no consideration given for the receipt of the asset, it probably should be designated as a zero basis asset. But again, without guidance, there is no clear understanding of what is expected out of taxpayers. Um, and the second issue is when should that airdropped asset be identified for tax purposes? Um, if you don't have an asset, you don't have any tax exposure. However, if you receive an asset, then you potentially have tax exposure. But as mentioned before, you may not ever know when you receive this airdropped asset. So one of the, the threshold issues is when, do you, when, when should you legally recognize that you have this asset? Um, it would be great if the IRS gave us some guidance as to that. I know the AICPA has written letters to the IRS that um, suggests a standard be adopted that when an airdropped asset is provided, the recipient has a certain amount of time to file a piece of paper that essentially says, I acknowledge that I received this asset and I choose to be taxed on it for this year. Um, to me, that seems sort of a misfit between what you want to happen and reality, because you may not ever know that you received an airdrop asset. If you don't look at, for instance, your MyEthernet wallet for a year, you may open it up and find out that you've received a whole bunch of new assets. Um, so for a variety of reasons, I feel like the IRS could really do better and provide us with some guidance as to how to treat airdrops. So let me ask you this. Is you know, airdrops are typically fairly insignificant. I mean, maybe worth in fiat $20, $25 max is as far as the ones I've seen. Have you seen fairly significant airdrops that really make a difference um, in terms of, you know, people worry about how much they're, they're assigning as a cost basis or are they typically kind of lower amounts? To my knowledge, they're lower amounts. Um, but this goes to a bigger issue. The value isn't really important, right? What's important from the IRS's perspective is that you are appropriately, faithfully, and accurately reporting your taxes. And if you're a person who perhaps received airdrops because you participated in certain bounty campaigns that certain issuers um, were rewarding folks handsomely, you may have found yourself on the receiving end of a lot of this asset. And so what we want is to be able to understand what is required of us and to faithfully comply with what the law requires. A lot of people don't know that there's this thing called a taxpayer bill of rights. If you go on the IRS's website, there's actually um, a series of statements as to what taxpayers are owed by the IRS. And a, sort of an overarching issue is the fact that this guidance hypothetically does not comply with the taxpayer's bill of rights. Um, there's a right to be informed, which is that we have the right, we taxpayers have the right to know what we need to do to comply with the tax laws. 
we're entitled to clear explanations of the laws and IRS procedures uh, in all tax forms, instructions, publications, notes, and correspondence. Um, so I, I can argue that with respect to these assets, those rights are not being uh, observed. We also have the right to a fair and just tax system. And if we don't know what's expected of us, and there isn't guidance that accurately and appropriately covers these assets, um, it could be argued that we are not, that the IRS isn't keeping its side of the agreement, that we have a, a fair and just tax system. Right. And I'm sure many people do agree with that sentiment. I'm not sure if the IRS would concede to it, but it's certainly an interesting way of looking at things. All right. Next up, I want to ask about uh, something a lot of crypto traders aren't sure about, and that's the calculation method they use to calculate their capital gains. So a lot of people use FIFO. Um, people were using Litekind, which now we know is not possible to use on anything other than real estate, I believe. So what's your opinion or what's your advice for, for crypto traders about which calculation method to use? Or do you have any input on that? Sure. You bring up a good point. Uh, none of this is to be considered legal accounting or business advice. Absolutely. Uh, this, is, this is all for educational purposes. So now that I got my standard lawyerly caveats out of the way, <laughs> um, this is an area where we really could have benefited from some help. The reality is we need to know which way the IRS wants us to value these assets. Um, there are essentially three options here. You do last in, first out, first in, first out, moving average, uh, which is something that we see more in mutual funds. Um, and, and obviously, the decision as to which strategy to use is impactful since it can change a short-term into a long-term gain and um, change the amount of tax paid for a given transaction. There's a, an argument to be made that you should actually use the transactions that the wallet actually uses, meaning if you spend three Bitcoin and the the unspent transaction output that is used to fund that three Bitcoin transaction is of a certain date, that's the date that you should use. Hmm. Um, there is an argument to be said to be made that you can assume one or the other, um, but we don't have guidance on this. And so we are all sort of left guessing. That's interesting about which way the uh, exchange calculates it. I've never really heard of that or thought of that. Um, I mean, clearly that would be difficult for a lot of people to track, you know, every exchange if they use a different method, but that is but a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Don't, don't think about exchanges for this. Think about wallets. Okay. A, wa a wallet has on a Bitcoin based system, a bunch of unspent transaction outputs in it. And if you have an unspent transaction output that you use to fund a transaction, you can actually go into the wallet and see the date in which you obtained control over that unspent transaction output and the date in which you transacted it to another party. And so you can actually manually make the calculation as to whether it is a transaction that qualifies as a short-term or a long-term capital gain. However, if you just blindly assume LIFO or FIFO, you may or may not be giving 100% accurate reporting. Now, we don't know what is expected of us here. Um, and not everybody is technically adept enough to do this. Um, for Ethereum-based systems, this is a little bit more complicated because this is a stateful system instead of a transaction output-based system. And so it works a little bit more like a bank account. You have $5, you put another $5, and you have $10. If you spend $6, you don't know whether five came from one and one from the other, three and three, two and four. Um, so it becomes a little bit more complicated to try to uh, use a sort of actual transaction-based approach. 
but obviously it can be very impactful as to the amount of tax that you pay. This also brings up the other really interesting question, which is if the IRS says, let's say they say FIFA, right? Mm -hmm. They just say, do first in, first out. Does that mean that wallets need to then conform to the IRS's guidance here? Or does that mean that you're going to have a disconnect between the actuality of your transactions and the way that they are booked for tax reporting purposes? Hmm. Well, you would hope, I guess, that if the guidance was released that said, you know, use FIFO, that every place would comply. You would hope that that would be the reaction to that guidance. So, so now you're asking wallet developers to change the functionality of their wallets just to comply with U.S. law. Not sure that that's a realistic expectation. No. It might be. It might be I don't know. Hmm. Remember, a lot of developers of software systems in crypto are people in far-flung places. Sometimes they don't identify themselves. A lot of them have a crypto anarchist bent where they don't really care about governance. And so they may not care that it may leave U.S. taxpayers who want to be compliant in a position where they have a limited set of offerings that they can use while staying in compliance with U.S. law. Or they might just give themselves a real headache um, and find themselves actually paying different amounts of tax because of the way that the guidance is written than they should, uh, given the actuality of their transactions. On that topic of using FIFO or LIFO or a different identification method to calculate your gains, one of our previous guests, Alex Kugelman, who specializes in risk reduction strategies for IRS audits, brought up the idea of minimizing your risk by doing what the majority does to avoid being an outlier. We had talked about that because we partnered with TurboTax this year in order to work with their system, TurboTax Online, they had to have users aggregate their trading data in order to input their data into TurboTax Online. TurboTax mm-hmm. is one of the biggest tax softwares in the United States, and they released a statement saying, we suggest aggregating your data. So there's no official guidance on whether submitting aggregated data reports on your cryptocurrency gains is allowed, but The fact that TurboTax, one of the biggest tax softwares in the United States, is saying to do it, and there's a bunch of other people doing it, that's kind of where that discussion came from. Personally, it makes sense to me. I mean, I'm not the person that enforces these laws, obviously, but to me, something like that makes sense. If you're an outlier and you're doing like kind or you're using a very specific identification method for calculating your gains, or you're doing something that's just out of the ordinary, I think that poses a higher audit risk than if you're doing something that the majority of cryptocurrency users are doing. I have a hard time understanding what the majority of cryptocurrency users are doing since I don't have access to anybody else's federal income tax filings. Um, It's interesting that TurboTax might be instructing folks to handle it in a certain way. Um, I don't know if TurboTax is handling the majority of federal income tax filings. I don't know whether other specialty um, platforms are handling things in a different way. I, I'm advised that some of them allow the filer to decide which strategy they want to use. Um, so again, this is a, a consequence of there not being any standardization in the area. And this is obviously something that complicates the IRS's job, which is to make sure that we are, as taxpayers, doing what we're supposed to do. Um, the more different approaches being taken, the harder it is or the more complicated it is for these folks to effectively do audits to ensure that everyone's doing this right. Um, So really nobody is winning here. To them, it should indicate that they need to get guidance out ASAP. And as you mentioned, 
there is potentially guidance coming out in the next month. So it would be within everybody's best interest to release some guidance so that there's not this big split of everybody doing something differently. Cause that's just gotta be a huge headache for the IRS right. and for, as we know us, you know, crypto users. Right. Ta tax is a different animal than say securities laws where folks have also been clamoring for certainty. Um, securities laws could be prohibitive and restrictive if the SEC was to come out with, for instance, a 15 point checklist where if you do these things, you're a security. And if you don't, you're not. Uh, doing something like that necessarily guides innovation and directs entrepreneurs when creating systems to do certain things because they want to fall out of this classification or be within this classification. Uh, for tax reporting purposes, certainty and clarity is actually helpful. Doesn't something exist to identify as a security? Isn't there like a three point? Um... There is a 1957 case called the U.S. versus Howie. Yes, the Howie claims, test. Yeah, you have this thing called the Howie test, which um, if you ask anybody who focuses on the investment side and the fundraising side of crypto, it is a very flexible test that is intended to encompass all sorts of different business activity and has uh, been both the benefit and the bane to this industry as people try to figure out how to you know, navigate the waters. Um, its flexibility leads to people wanting there to be more certainty. Um, I'm of the belief that that's why you hire smart lawyers who understand what you're doing to help, you guide, to help guide you through that process. Um, other jurisdictions like the UK have taken fundamentally different approaches um, and it's still other jurisdictions like Singapore and Switzerland have taken different approaches as well. Um, this is one of the reasons why I believe along with privacy and environmental regulation, crypto should be something that is regulated on a global basis. On the topic of foreign investments, can you touch on some of the, I guess, controversy around FBAR and FATCA filing? Um, what constitutes a foreign exchange? Sometimes it's not so cut and dry. A great topic. One of the questions that I ask my students in my class is, where are my Bitcoins right now? Let's assume that I own a Bitcoin. Where is it? It's not immediately clear because Bitcoin and similar crypto assets are a fundamentally different form of property than we're used to dealing with. Um, we think about Bitcoin and we think about owning a Bitcoin, but really what we have is control of an asset and the ability to negotiate it to another party. That control is manifested by using a private key to direct a blockchain to initiate a transaction of an asset from you to another person. I can't hold a Bitcoin in my hand. Um, the, the term that I use is that a Bitcoin is an ephemeral asset. It doesn't have any physical um, representation. You can't externalize a Bitcoin onto a piece of paper or into a piece of metal or anything else. You can externalize the credential that you need to control a Bitcoin. Right. That's the private key onto a piece of paper, onto a, a computer jump drive, a, a hardware wallet, a piece, mm -hmm. you know, a piece of art, all sorts of different ways. So when you think about where is the asset, it starts to become very difficult. Um, my argument is that the asset exists on the internet, which is kind of everywhere and nowhere at once. So when you start to think about where is a Bitcoin, you end up with this really confusing question of how can an asset that's everywhere and nowhere at once exist in a specific jurisdiction? Now, US law will likely determine that where a person that has control of the asset is able to exercise control over that asset will be its legal situs or its legal, the place where it legally exists. So then you get run into other even hairier questions. 
if I have my private key saved on my cell phone and I go from Florida to Georgia, did my Bitcoin just follow me? I don't know. And if I have my Bitcoin on a, uh, a Trezor, for instance, and I mail the Trezor, I've, I'm sorry, I have the, the private key to my Bitcoin on a Trezor, and I mail the Trezor from Florida to California, did my Bitcoin just move or not? I don't really know. If I have uh, my crypto assets held on an exchange, and the exchange now has the private key associated with my crypto assets, does the exchange's legal place of incorporation or operation, does that become the place where my Bitcoin is? I don't know. I think, and this is my own personal belief, something that I plan to write about and explore in further depth, I believe the physical place where a Bitcoin exists is always on the network. And there are, there are lots of interesting case law that talks about where assets on the internet actually exist for jurisdictional purposes. Um, but I think ultimately that there's going to be a very narrow case, a set of cases where an asset is actually considered to be in a foreign jurisdiction. Let's assume that I use a custodian. I, the custodian is the person who is given access and control of my asset. And I know for a fact that that custodian is either incorporated in a foreign country or has their server farms or their, their deep cold storage vaults in whatever format that is uh, located in a foreign jurisdiction. At that point, I can feel pretty comfortable that my assets, because the control of those assets are located in a foreign jurisdiction, though at that point, those assets might be foreign. But otherwise, it's really unclear to me as to where a, a crypto asset is at any given time, and thus from a legal basis, whether any reporting associated with foreign assets would be required. This is one of these open questions that uh, probably will be resolved by a court at some point. Hmm. And you know, I've heard a couple different opinions on Generally, the opinion I originally heard was, since there's no uh, fee associated with, you know, filing an FBAR, a lot of people were recommending, if you're not sure and you're close to that, you know, amount that you're supposed to have, $10,000 or whatever it is, they would say to just file. I've heard other people say, you know, you know screw that. There's no, there's no reason to file if you don't have to. So, you know, I, it's of my personal opinion that if you're, if you're unsure, it wouldn't be a bad idea to just file it. But as you said, in the crypto space, there are a lot of people that are like, you know, anti-government or they want their anonymity and they want to report as little as possible. So it's, it is, it's a tricky situation. I guess it's a personal decision at this point. If you want to take a chance, if you don't like showing the government your information, it's completely a personal decision, I suppose. Well, if you think about it, the government is going to probably know where your crypto assets are if you're complying Otherwise, with the reporting of gains and losses, um, whether you file an FBAR or factor or not. True. Because if you are attaching CSVs or spreadsheets that demonstrate your transaction activity along with a, uh, a filing to disclose any gains or losses that you're claiming for that year, more than likely it's going to say the name of a bunch of different exchanges. And if the government decides that an exchange is located in a foreign jurisdiction, they're going to know. And if the government decides at some point in the future to go after folks for not filing the factors and FBARs, that's probably where they will start looking. Um, given that there's nothing in the guidance about it, it's hard to really take a strong position one way or the other. All right, Drew, let's jump into some state and federal differences with cryptocurrency and blockchain. Can you talk a little bit about some of those differences? Sure. Most of the attention has been paid to what the federal law 
requires us to do with respect to paying taxes. Mm -hmm. But kind of flying under the radar have been a bunch of state laws that take a variety of different approaches to crypto. Um, for instance, Michigan, Missouri, and Wisconsin have said virtual currency is not taxable service or tangible property subject to sales tax. So in those jurisdictions, you may not have any state sales tax obligations at all. Um, there have been a whole bunch of states that have introduced new remote nexus sales tax, sales and use tax laws, uh, which perhaps unintentionally or incidentally might sweep crypto asset sales into uh, being sales tax, uh, into being transactions subject to sales tax. And I'll, I'll talk in a little bit about more depth, uh, about that issue in a little bit more depth. Um, but you've got sort of the Michigan, Missouri, Wisconsin approach. You've got about 35 or 40 states that are moving to capture remote nexus sales tax transactions, which like I said, might incidentally include crypto. Um, you've got bills in places like Arizona, where they would want to add income derived from the exchange of virtual currency for other currency to the computation required for state gross income. Hmm. Um, and then you've got a bunch of sort of one-off oddball bills. Um, Nevada passed a law that banned local governments from taxing blockchain use. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Um, New Jersey has issued guidance saying that it will conform its state tax treatment to that of the federal tax treatment. Um, and we've seen States like Utah that proposed bills that would have allowed residents to pay their taxes with virtual currencies. Um, we've seen so, some local governments like Seminole County in, here in Florida that have allowed the payment of certain taxes with crypto assets. Um, really what they're doing is they're letting you pay BitPay, which then changes your crypto into US dollars and pays the taxing authority. I remember hearing in the news about a few states allowing you to pay your tax bill with cryptocurrency. I remember hearing initially that it was for businesses uh, at first. Yeah. Right. So Seminole County did it first and then Ohio did it second. But yeah, the Ohio, uh, the, uh, the Ohio decision to allow people to pay via crypto is limited to businesses. Okay. Um, and and I, I would be really interested to see statistics as to how often that's actually used. I, I have a fleeting suspicion that it's not being used very often. Hmm. Um, but, but I think the real action, well, and also I want to mention Wyoming, which is fully exempted virtual currency from its straight state property taxes. So in Wyoming, you're not paying any tax to the state for virtual currency. Um, but to me, the really interesting area here is looking at these remote nexus sales tax laws. For decades, we've had a law that says that sales and use tax cannot be applied for sales of goods or services from sellers that do not have a, an appropriate state nexus, meaning they're not incorporated in the state or they don't actually have uh, property or substantial operations in the state. And that's how a lot of us have been able to have tax-free internet transactions uh, for a long time. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, South Dakota sued uh, internet retailer Wayfair, went to the US Supreme Court, and the US Supreme Court um, receded from the state nexus test and replaced it with an economic nexus test, which basically says if there's substantial economic activity into the state, the state can now apply its sales and use tax. And states have passed a bunch of laws that kind of set up different goalposts. Generally, it's 100 or 200 transactions into the state. Um, the amount of the transactions has varied from $100,000 to $500,000, depending on states. And this creates a situation now where if you're a retailer not in the state and you're selling assets or doing taxable transactions into the state uh, above a certain threshold, 
you may now be required to pay state um, sales and use tax. So far, so good. How does this apply to crypto? Well, these, ta these, these new tax laws are being written to, with an understanding of how internet transactions work. And nowadays, we have a bunch of very, very large marketplaces that facilitate a bunch of sellers buying their goods. You can think about Craigslist or eBay or Etsy or Amazon. Mm -hmm. These are platforms that allow lots and lots of different small vendors to have a unified way to reach their customers. And so these new laws are being written to assign liability for collection and payment of state sales and use tax for the sellers upon these marketplaces. They're typically defined as marketplace facilitators. So the state is going to look to Amazon, for instance, to collect and pay the sales tax that is owed by the sellers. Um, and there are a variety of different tests being used to determine who's a marketplace seller and who's a marketplace facilitator. Generally, a marketplace facilitator is a person that creates a marketplace used by sellers to sell and to collect payment where they are communicating off, uh, offered acceptance by the seller and buyer, where they operate the infrastructure that brings the sellers and buyers together. And a lot of these um, new laws include, in the definition of a marketplace facilitator, those that provide a virtual currency that the buyer can use to purchase products from the seller. Would that constitute, if this includes crypto, would that constitute like centralized and decentralized exchanges? They would be marketplace uh, sellers if I'm understanding you correctly. There's a lot of nuance in this analysis and state by state, there's a lot of variation in these laws. However, there are some states that have exceptionally broad definitions of marketplace sellers like Hawaii and South Dakota, for instance. Mm -hmm. Their laws could be understood to view a trader on a centralized crypto asset exchange as a seller. Mm. And assuming that crypto assets, of which there are a bunch of different types, qualify as the type of assets that can be taxable, it could be understood and interpreted by a, tax, uh, by a taxing authority that a person who does a lot of sales or a lot of purchases of crypto assets on one of these platforms could be required to remit sales tax on those transactions, which would put us in a really weird place where federally you have an asset for which you have to pay capital gains and on a state by state level, you have to pay sales tax on those transactions. That would not make many people happy. Absolutely. It would become incredibly complicated because then you have to think about, do you pay capital gains on the tax that you paid? <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are bad outcomes um, ultimately for everybody because they introduce a tremendous amount of uncertainty, um, a lot of consternation, and it does not make it easy to comply with what we're required to do, which is pay the taxes that we're supposed to pay. Yeah, and that really is going to hamper adoption, too. It, it, it certainly could. Um, but it goes further than simply exchanges. You have to think about a bunch of crypto projects that created marketplaces for people to buy and sell assets or products or services using the native currency. In those circumstances, it could be that the project that creates the marketplace could be required to collect and remit to the state sales tax for all of its users. And there's a ton of ambiguity in the language as to facilitating transactions between clients, whether the platform is viewed as listing or not, whether um, allowing people to transact across a blockchain is considered payment processing. Um, there's going to be, there's a lot of analysis to be done here. Um, 
it's not clear as to whether these laws intend to target crypto necessarily, but the, some of these laws could be read to even um, look at the Ethereum system itself as a marketplace facilitator for which buyers and sellers of things like ERC-20 or ERC-721 assets could potentially be subject to state sales tax. And then you get into the crazy question of who is Ethereum for the purpose of collecting tax? Sounds like a real headache. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a place where there's a lot of interesting exploration to be done. Um, it remains to be seen whether any of the state sales tax authorities, the tax, you know, tax regulators and tax enforcement agencies want to go in this route, but a, 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 a pretty non-controversial read of these laws uh, puts this at issue. Well, I mean, it seems like for states, it's a, unfortunately a no-brainer way of, of getting some more income for the state through taxation. But in terms of how people would react to it, I mean, I don't think crypto users would be very happy at all about it. And it'll be a tough one. If that, if that occurs, that's going to be tough to deal with in this space. So we'll see what happens. And for you and your listeners, if you're interested in getting a little bit more in the weeds on this issue, keep your eye out for a series of articles to be published in the coming weeks detailing these remote nexus sales and use tax bills and, and laws, uh, their application to crypto assets. And although it's a little outside the scope of our discussion here, uh, this could also potentially impact the world of online gaming, especially for video games where people are allowed to resell their loot boxes and their in-game skins. Um, for marketplaces like Steam, where people are able to sell and resell video games, um, and even for um, certain online streamers that get paid for performance. Wow. Yeah. So that, that is very interesting. A big box of messy coming at you. Jeez. And I also can't believe people actually buy skins from other people on video games. I mean, that's uh, what about like loot boxes? Would that be, are they going to like tax loot boxes and stuff for video games? Well, the idea here is that if you have a, a system, and I believe it's one of the Call of Duty games, um, actually allows you to sell to another gamer a in-game item that you receive, and you do enough of these transactions, the video game publisher might be viewed as the marketplace facilitator. <laughs> and if you have enough qualifying transactions, meaning you do over 100 transactions in the appropriate jurisdiction, or you make more than $100,000 in assets for $100,000 in value for making these transactions, you may have to pay state sales tax. And does that mean that, for instance, Activision might have to start collecting sales tax? Um, again, this may not be what's intended, but it's not much of a stretch to read it that way. Is there a timeline on, on these kind of state rules and state laws? Is it something that this year we might see or next year? Is there a general timeline for this kind of stuff? I think the first of these laws went into effect in 2018. Um, I think it's something like 40 states have rolled out their own versions of these laws, and they've been passing pretty easily. The only state that I know that passed it where the law didn't go into effect was Kansas, where the bill was passed by its legislature, but vetoed by the governor. Um, so this, is, this isn't a coming soon. This is a here right now thing. Wow. If you have concerns about this, talk to your accounting professional, talk to a qualified counsel that understands the issues. Um, it's important to get educated and support to know what you do. And most importantly, tax and legal issues are complicated. You don't want to do this on your own. You want to find competent counsel. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about um, asset valuation. How are people supposed to value their asset? According to the 2014 guidance, which was a, a question and answer form, 
You're supposed to value your virtual currency assets based upon the fair market value, which means not necessarily the price you paid, but the actual value based on the guidance you're given. It tells us that we're supposed to report the value in US dollars, that we're supposed to determine the fair market value of virtual currency in US dollars as the date of payment or receipt. Mm -hmm. If it's listed on an exchange and the exchange rate is established by market supply and demand, we're supposed to convert the US, the virtual currency into US dollars at the exchange rate in a reasonable manner that is consistently applied. Now, the lawyer in me can cut that up into a thousand pieces and make it mean a hundred different things. For one thing, I don't know if any of our exchanges have prices that are established by market supply and demand. It's not a secret that a lot of the exchanges, including the most heavily regulated exchanges, still have a fair amount of wash trading going on, which, don't, which doesn't really occur in normal regulated markets. Uh, for those who don't know, wash trading is essentially where somebody buys and sells among themselves or to somebody else in order to artificially move the price. That's a, kind of a, a bulky back of envelope expl explanation of wash trading. Mm -hmm. And wash trading artificially changes the price. But let's, let's go back here. You're supposed to translate the value into US dollars. And if the asset is on an exchange, and the exchange rate is established by supply and demand, you're supposed to convert the value into US dollars at the exchange rate in a reasonable manner that is consistently applied. You could ask 100 lawyers what a reasonable manner that is consistently applied means, and you might get 100 different answers. But let's look at practically what that means. If I have a Bitcoin in a transaction, I'm supposed to look at an exchange and find out what the value is. There might be 300 different exchanges that I could look at at any given time, and I don't know which one I'm supposed to look at. Do I look at the one that I did the transaction on? Am I supposed to look at the one that has the highest um, volume at the time of the transaction or within 24 hours of the transaction? If I did my transaction in the US in the middle of the night, is a Japanese exchange more indicative of the price than a US exchange because they might have more value, or sorry, more volume? Is a, should I look at a blend of exchanges? Should I weight them based on volume? Should I weight them based on geography? This guidance doesn't tell me what to do. This guidance tells me to use a reasonable manner that is consistently applied. So what this ends up with is a situation where a bunch of like-minded people who want to comply could come up with drastically different methodologies that result in different values, and also which results in different amounts of tax paid. And that doesn't seem right. What I have suggested and what I think is right is that we should look at the tax guidance that's used for securities that are traded on multiple different securities exchanges. That tax guidance suggests that we're supposed to look at the exchange that has the highest amount of volume and use that value, which could make sense here. However, we might also see that people for some reason are making transactions where the value that they're getting in receipt for crypto asset is wildly out of sync with the actual market value. In that case, we need to go back and examine what fair market value actually means. Fair market value is a term of art in the, the accounting world that doesn't mean necessarily what you might think it means. Fair market value is generally established by IRS Revenue Ruling 5960. There have been a whole bunch of elaborations and clarifications to it, but fair market value is essentially the price at which the property would change hands between a willing buyer and a willing seller, when the former is not under any compulsion to buy and the latter is not under any compulsion to sell, both parties having reasonable knowledge of relevant facts. So I would posit the question back to you. 
how many crypto transactions are fair market value transactions? I'd say almost none because I have no idea with whom I'm transacting. I don't know if the person is under compulsion to deal because they have recently had health problems and have massive medical bills. I don't know whether a person has a gun to their head and they're being made to make a transaction so that they can go get cash. I have no idea whether the person understands crypto the way that I do. I don't know their circumstances at all. That's talking between person and person. I mean, that's uh, like a decentralized situation where you're trading between crypto user, crypto user on a, like a centralized platform, like a Coinbase or something like that. It's just one user buying it from, you know, Coinbase. And so in that case, it's the user knows what they're doing. They're seeing a price that it's worth. They're, Coinbase lists the price that it's at. They're entering an agreement when they purchase it at that price. So I see what you're saying if it's a user to user situation, but if it's on like a centralized exchange, which is a lot, which is commonplace for a lot of crypto users. I mean, there's a debate whether centralized or decentralized is better, whatever, but a lot of people use centralized exchanges. So in that case, it's just up to the person buying the cryptocurrency to be able to see the price that they're purchasing it for. Right? Sure. So, so remember this applies both ways. That means that your seller isn't under a compulsion to deal. And I agree for a, uh, for an exchange, which is a business entity, mm -hmm. this may not be as problematic, but what about a decentralized exchange? What if I'm transacting on IDEX or crypto bridge? Mm -hmm. I don't know who the other party is. Agreed. What if I'm doing a hand to hand transaction? I may not know the other party's name ever. Obviously there's some, uh, BSA FinCEN issues there, but I may not know the name of the other person. I may not know their circumstances. So one, one of the things that I ask people to think about a lot is, do you know whether this is an arm's length transaction and that your counterparty really understands all the facts with respect to the asset and how they should value it? So this is what's popping in my head as we're having this discussion. Occam's razor, right? That usually the simplest explanation is typically the right explanation. So yes, it's, it's ambiguous and it's open to interpretation, but can't we just put all that ambiguity aside and just go with what the simplest explanation is in this situation and just kind of say, okay, wherever you bought it from, for example, whatever price they say it is, you go with that as the fair market value. It, it would probably not comply with this guidance, but then again, nobody is forcing anybody's hand here. It's an interesting topic for sure. And I mean, when you were talking about going to the exchange with the most volume as the fair market value, I thought instantly, doesn't that give that exchange too much power? I mean, again, as I mentioned, there's a debate between decentralized and centralized. I think a lot of those people that encourage decentralized exchanges would be annoyed that these centralized exchanges are going being used to determine fair market value because they have the most volume. Right. It seems counterintuitive. Parties at an arm's length should be the ones that create the fair market value. But here it seems like institutions are dictating, which might sound backwards. Um, while you were talking, I went on CoinMarketCap, which you know, mm -hmm. some people like and some people don't like. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at the price of Bitcoin right now. Mm -hmm. And right now there's an exchange that has Bitcoin priced at $8,949. And right now there's an exchange that has Bitcoin priced at $8,333. That's about a $600 delta. Um, so which exchange is right and why? You're right. It's complex, right? Because there is an ambiguity there. So, I mean, I would say like with Bitcoin taxes, we use a weighted average. If you use different tax services, you're always going to have a different price. And that's kind of, it comes with the territory. Unfortunately, there's not one single price. 
And so this is why I personally, my personal belief, my personal idea is if you want to bring certainty and standardization into tax reporting, they can look across their existing laws and guidance and regs and say, okay, what does this sort of look like? What makes sense to implement? You could look at the rules for dual listed securities, which is use the price at the time on the exchange that has the highest volume. Done. Simple. That would be the simple way. Maybe there would be unintended consequences, like I said, with giving too much power to one exchange, but it would be the simple way of just giving us a price, fair market value. Right. And again, crypto being crypto, there nothing is simple. If you look at the exchanges with the highest volume, some of them are selling derivatives, some of them are selling spot. Which one do you want to choose and why? There's actually an argument to be made that a derivative platform might be more predictive, but it's not the same transaction. You're doing a spot transaction, not a future transaction. So rounding off this discussion, valuation here under the guidance is somewhat vague and somewhat loosey-goosey. And while it's frustrating and difficult since it allows a whole bunch of people to come up with a whole bunch of different approaches without any sense of which ones are actually correct, um, and it complicates the idea of, say, perhaps auditing, since if the IRS wants to go, they need to go back and check all of the numbers on all of the different exchanges, make sure the methodology is being implemented appropriately. It's much more laborious for them. Um, in the context of 2014, when we didn't have the ICO boom, we didn't have ERC-20 throwing off this Cambrian explosion of new assets, um, it actually wasn't so bad. Now, that, since things have changed, it seems antiquated, but at the time it wasn't terrible. Um, so if it's okay with you, I wanna pivot the discussion valuation to a, a slightly different area, which is away from federal income tax reporting and toward other places where valuation is necessary. Things like business transactions, um, reporting to shareholders or reporting to LP interests and funds uh, because valuation for tax might be a little bit different than the valuation we see there. Any interest in going there? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, I mean, you definitely do raise a valid point with valuation. It's one of those things that I personally have never really thought too much about. I've always just kind of gone with, okay, fair market value is this, but you definitely do raise a valid point about assigning fair market value and what fair market value is. And I think it's a really interesting discussion. Last point on that. We, we have seen wonderful work from our friends at Bitwise who have undertaken to analyze what's actually going on at these exchanges. Um, and they have found that according to them and their research, the vast majority of non-US exchange volume is fraudulent or fake. Again, how does this work into our analysis of value if we have one person out there doing their own research telling us that a whole bunch of these exchanges are BS and the numbers and information on there are synthetic or manufactured or made up. Should we now be ignoring all those exchanges for valuation purposes? What if you're a bona fide person doing real transactions on one of these exchanges where most of the volume is manipulated? Can you no longer rely on that? Should you be using different numbers? I think there's a really interesting argument to be made to that says yes. Right. Well, they say ignorance is bliss. So <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good excuse when the, when the IRS calls. Oh, a hundred percent. But people have been saying that prices in crypto are fraudulent for ages and people are still trading crypto. I mean, people are buying Bitcoin. You know, there's some people saying that, yeah, these prices are inflated for certain reasons, or there's a lot of sketchiness going on here with indicating the price, but that hasn't stopped you know, there's still crypto trading going on. You know, maybe people have moved away from one coin to a different coin because they don't like what's going on in the background of, of a certain coin like Bitcoin. But 
there's still, you know, what, hundreds of thousands of people trading. It, it, it exists, but it's one of those things. It's like, what are we going to do about it? When I buy a Bitcoin off Coinbase, I don't know that there's some dark conglomerate that is artificially inflating the prices as I'm buying it. I'm just buying a Bitcoin because I want to buy a Bitcoin, you know? I, I hear that. Um, and I think that ultimately we're going to get some better clarity when either the SEC or CFTC decides to address the donut hole between their respective jurisdictions and come up with I hope what I hope ends up being principles-based guidance for how crypto spot exchanges should conduct their affairs and what sort of trades they should and shouldn't allow and policies and governance and reporting and what have you. Um, a little non-tax aside here, spot trading of commodities, which is what generally Bitcoin and Ethereum are considered by various regulators, uh, doesn't typically happen on trading platforms. We have margin and futures products based on commodities that are regulated by the CFTC and they have their own trading platforms and their own means by which they regulate trades. Mm -hmm. We have trades of securities that happen and that's regulated by the SEC and happens on either ATSs or national stock exchanges. But crypto trading is weird because it's sort of in the middle. It doesn't really fall within either. Um, technically the CFTC has jurisdiction because the CFTC has jurisdiction to regulate anything for which there could be a future or margin product offered. So that's sort of how Bitcoin and Ether wind up in that bucket. But we haven't generally seen the spot product itself being regulated uh, this way because they aren't generally traded this way. Um, there aren't platforms where people buy and sell large amounts of orange juice or coffee on the spot market. The people who do those transactions are sometimes they're wholesalers or retailers. Um, they have they all know each other they all have standard contracts and uh it's it doesn't look anything like crypto so there's a lot of hand wringing and uh people who are trying to come up with uh ways to regulate these markets in the right way and i i personally think it probably ends up being the cftc that does it um former cftc chairman timothy Massad wrote a really interesting paper through the brookings institution and harvard talking about the principles that he thinks make sense for that regulation if anybody wants to, to go deep on the regulatory side, it's a, it's a really good read. Um, going back to valuation, tax valuation is for, uh, in this guidance is for taxes, but it, it starts to get more complicated when you think about other places where you need to value these assets. If a person decides as part of their estate plan, for instance, that they want to make a charitable donation of crypto assets, technically they need to have, if the, uh, if the assets are expected to be in value $5,000 or more, a qualified appraisal in order to properly take advantage of the tax benefit. The, the regulations for qualified appraisals require you to use a qualified appraiser. Qualified appraiser is a person who's defined by the statute as having experience in appraising the type of asset at issue. So this is really easy if you have a sculpture or a painting, but this gets hard when you have Bitcoin because who is an experienced Bitcoin appraiser? I'm not sure if there are any. So that's one area where you've got a problem. Um, and ultimately, if the service decides they don't like an appraisal, if they think it's fraudulent, uh, they might take it to court. And ultimately, you would end up with a battle of experts where you have one appraiser that uses their appraisal methodology and it gets in front of a judge or a jury. And then you have the service that's going to have their own view as to how this should be appraised. And then you're going to have probably in tax court an argument and a judge coming down with a ruling that for these assets, we want to see them appraised in this way. Um, a lot of people 
kind of conflate what the tax guidance says about appraisal with uh, appraisals for other circumstances. And that's an area that I expect to see a little bit more action on in the future. Um, but that kind of getting back to the tax guidance here, we have sort of this generalized guidance as to valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is guidance. This isn't a rule or a regulation or a law. And if somebody doesn't like it, they could always take the IRS to court. And then again, you could have your own expert get in front of a judge and advocate as to why their methodology is better. Uh, this isn't cast in stone. It could be modified by the guidance that we expect to come out in the next couple of weeks, or it could be challenged in court and clarified that way. Clearly, you have a ton of knowledge in this space. Um, and I'm sure we could talk for a, a few hours about this sort of stuff. But let's talk a little bit about your experience teaching. You're the first guest I've had that is a professor of this topic. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a professor in this space? Sure. Um, I, I have to say it's one of the most fun and enriching things that I've had a chance to do. Um, since I kind of fell in love with the topic in 2014, primarily I was trying to figure out how I could incorporate knowledge of crypto in my legal practice. And it led me to educating a, a whole bunch of different types of folks, including those in the tax world and in the accounting world as to how these systems work and all their legal implications. Uh, getting the chance to teach at NYU has been unbelievable. My co-professor, David Yermak, who I teach with, is an unbelievably smart guy, is an incredible teacher, um, and has really done wonders for me and helped me to kind of understand and level up in the area. Um, one of the most fun things is the enthusiasm from the students. They are incredibly motivated to understand this. They see how crypto assets and blockchain technology and all the different things that people are building based upon them um, are have a, a really good chance to fundamentally change the way that the economic world works. And a lot of companies recruiting out of NYU have been very, very interested in the students who have taken the class. Um, the class isn't solely focused on tax. It's uh, a JD MBA class that looks at the these assets and this technology and how they have the chance to change financial services. Um, but we, we've had some students that have been unbelievably curious and come in with uh, experience-based knowledge in the space. And it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Um, and I've been very proud to see that some of my former students are now um, doing things in the industry. So it's, it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an amazing opportunity to take a class like that. Well, my hope is that there continues to be more education provided, not just at incredibly elite academic institutions like NYU, but across the board. Um, There is a really interesting and unique opportunity for this technology to be used to change some of the ills in the world and to uh, change the way that the world works for the better. And uh, my hope is that a lot of people get excited about it the same way that I did and take it upon themselves uh, to educate themselves about it. I I do see a lot of like businesses jumping on the blockchain bandwagon, which is great. But I think a lot more, you know, independent developers, students, people need to learn about blockchain technology because like you said, it has so many applications, so many powerful applications that could be really huge for changing things in our world. So we'll have to see, we'll have to see what the future holds. And that's why I'm doing this podcast too. We're going to look at all sorts of different applications of blockchain technology, not just cryptocurrency, which is what everybody associates with blockchain technology, but we're definitely going to look at some of the more uh, niche topics and applications of blockchain technology. So 
It was great talking to you today, though, Drew. I really appreciate it. It's like we got a, a mini lesson here today, which I think a lot of people should be grateful for that aren't able to go to NYU. They were able to just listen in and hear some of your great information. I know you've got some articles coming out. You've written over 20 articles. Uh, so if people want to find out more, they can check those out. If they want to get in touch with you, what would be a good way to get in touch with you? Well, I'm, I'm like a lot of people in crypto. I'm hyperactive on Twitter. You can follow me. My Twitter handle is at propel forward. Um, and I have a website that has a nice list of some of my articles. That's andrewhinkist.com. If anybody wants to check me out and reach out to me, they can find me there. Cool. And we'll throw out some links for your articles and uh, your website. And when did you say you're pushing out some of these articles on state regulations? Should be in the next few weeks. Um, it's going to address what these state remote nexus sales and use tax laws are all about. It's going to take a deep dive into their implications for um, ICO platforms that created marketplaces for centralized and decentralized exchanges and for the Ethereum protocol. Um, and then the third part is going to talk about the implications for video game publishers, streamers, manufacturers, and resellers of skins and loot boxes and similar assets. Very interesting. I think there's a little bit of overlap in between the field of cryptocurrency and, uh, and video game enthusiasts. I think there's some overlap there for sure. Totally. You can look at projects like Unicorn, for instance, which are cryptocurrency, which are blockchain enabled gaming platforms for uh, competitive online gaming. There's, I don't know, there's got to be a ton of gaming and crypto gaming and blockchain plays out there. Um, it is a really smart way to do gaming, assuming that the sort of gaming we're talking about is legal in your jurisdiction. Um, provably fair games of chance where you can uh, record the history on a blockchain and people can go back and retroactively look to see if the randomizer is working is a really interesting uh, implementation. I'd be interested to talk to somebody who knows about the uh, intersection between video games and blockchain technology. That would be an interesting topic to look into as well. Absolutely. Happy to connect you with some folks who know a lot about that. Sweet. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, Drew, thanks again. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Taxes podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for future podcasts discussing a range of crypto and blockchain related topics.